0: Father, we ask that you would help us through your word to hear the call for the endurance of the saints, for those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. Amen. On the eve of Britain's entry into World War II, C.S. Lewis gave a lecture or a sermon, actually, at Oxford entitled, Learning During Wartime. Many were starting to ask the question whether it was pointless to pursue educational matters in such a volatile time. Wasn't studying Greek and Latin and physics while Europe and the world seemed to be on the verge of collapse a little bit like Nero fiddling while Rome burned? But he goes on to say in that sermon that really humanity is always on the verge of collapse. War is only an unveiling of what is often or always true. And if society waited until there was a complete time of security, learning would never continue. We're taking some time to study the book of Revelation. And Revelation shows us, it actually unveils for us the world as it is. And as we're seeing, especially as we saw last week, it's a world when we are able to have these apocalyptic eyes, we're able to see this world of beasts, this world of dragons. The world is a place of conflict. So one might ask, given all the pressing and urgent problems around us in our own lives, in our family, in society, around the world, why is worship, why is coming together as Christians on the Lord's Day so important? Isn't it really, if we're honest, a distraction from engaging the real problems of the world? I think Revelation answers that question with a resounding no. Worship, Christian worship, coming together as the people of God, this actually is the most important thing we can do, the most powerful thing we can do, particularly in times of crisis and conflict. Revelation, it's a book about tribulation, it's a book about living in a world of chaos, yes, but it's also a book about worship in the midst of that reality. And that's what I want us to see tonight as we look at Revelation 14 through 15. I want us to see that participating in Christian worship is actually the most important thing that we can be doing right now. And it always has been the most important thing we can be doing. Revelation 14 and 15, like every bit of Revelation, is chock full of all sorts of things that we could explore. But I want us to work with this theme of worship and to see two aspects of worship being the most important thing that we do. And the first is that worship is inevitable. And the second is worship is warfare. So that's how we're going to look at this big chunk in chapters 14 and 15. Worship is inevitable, and worship is warfare. So in our passage, there are actually two sets, two groups of worshipers. First, there's the 144,000. So who is this group? Who are these 144,000? We first met them actually back in chapter 7. And they are the martyrs, the martyrs of the early church. They are sealed. That is, they are marked out as servants of God. So in chapter 14, verse 3, they return. We see these 144,000 again marked out. And this time, Jesus is standing with them on Mount Zion. Jesus is standing in solidarity with them. They are standing in solidarity with Jesus. The 144,000, they have picked their sides. They have picked the side of Jesus in the face of death. But there's another set of worshipers also in this section and throughout the book of Revelation. As John's vision continues and unfolds, John sees three angels preaching. and They're actually all preaching the same message. They're preaching the gospel message. But part of this message is this in verse 9, chapter 14. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. The beast, as we saw last week in the last couple of chapters, is this imperial force. It's Rome and its ally, the the Jewish establishment of the day, who promoted worship of the beast. Whatever you make as your primary loyalty... You'll worship that. We see that in Revelation. For many in John's day, that meant Rome. Rome would be the protector, would be the insurer of peace and salvation. Beast worship. Beast worship represents a way of living that may enjoy some present security and comfort, but Revelation shows us it ends by drinking the cup of the wine of God's wrath. Beast worship. Beast worship is when we ascribe divine qualities to things like the state, to things like politics, to things like relationships, jobs, money, sex, power, you name it, and expect those things to do what only God can do for us. We give ourselves to these things. But those who identify with the lamb, the 144,000, are giving themselves to something different. Their lives actually will be full of upheaval because they follow the lamb. Their lives will be cut down, like the kernel of the wheat that falls to the ground in our gospel lesson. But in their deaths, they will bear much fruit. They will be the grapes, the wine that will be trodden to the ground, but yet will bear fruit in their martyrdom, in their death. Why? Because they have chosen to worship the Lamb. They've picked sides. They've chosen the side of the Lamb. What we see here is that worship is not optional. It's inevitable. In Revelation, it's confronting us, among other things, with this basic question. Whom do you really worship? Why? What is it that you are really giving your life to? Because what you worship will shape you in deep, deep ways. It'll change you. It will, over time, form you. It will consume you. It will grow in its power over you. And ultimately, it will demand your life. It will ask you to lay down your life for it. David Foster Wallace gave a, a, what is now kind of a famous commencement address to Kenyon College. Uh, Wallace passed away a few years ago. He was not a Christian, but he had a very powerful understanding of how worship works. I'm going to quote a bit from his comm- commencement speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Again, not a Christian saying this. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they were where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual lure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. You worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's not a question of whether we worship, it's a question of what we worship. And Revelation understands actually this human instinct to worship. And the reality that we can worship things that might seem good at first, but in the end they can completely destroy us. Revelation sees worship actually as a matter of life and death. We could say a matter of eternal life. And eternal death. We are fundamentally worshiping beings, and Revelation is unveiling for us the Lamb, who alone is worthy of our worship, worthy of our ultimate and deepest affections. The first angel preaches, chapter 14, verse 6, preaches the gospel Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So worship is inevitable, but also worship is warfare. Well, what do I mean by that? The 144,000 in these couple of chapters, they're actually taking a journey. Jesus comes to stand with them on Mount Zion. The context of Mount Zion actually evokes both, we could say, liturgical and warfare Imagery. Mount Zion is a fortress, the stronghold of Jerusalem, the place where King David first came and captured Jerusalem and brought the ark. Jesus appears on this mountain. He appears on this mountain to train a new army, but it's a new army of worshipers. And on Mount Zion, with the Lamb surrounded by his army of worshipers, a voice is heard like many waters. It's thunderous, there are instruments playing, and a host singing a new song before the throne. These 144,000, they're marked out for Jesus, and they're destined to be his martyrs. And in the midst of this, on this journey, what are they doing? They are learning, it says, learning to sing a new song. Now, aren't there more important things to be doing for these martyrs who are about to die? I don't know, maybe, you know, learning to fight a little bit to preserve some of your life, resist with weapons. I mean, because the beasts are on their way. Isn't this kind of a royal waste of time to be learning to sing when perhaps in a few days you're going to face the end of your life? Aren't there other ways of resistance, other tactics that would have been more worthwhile? But no, they're standing with the lamb and the lamb is teaching them. They are learning to sing this new song as warriors of the lamb on Mount Zion. They're given a different kind of weapon. They're given the weapon of song. As Jesus has them on this fortress mountain teaching them, The choir director, training them to sing. But notice something else, and you might have heard this odd part in verses four and five. They're described as, it is they who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. There's so many places in Revelation where you're reading along and you're like, wait, what? What's going on here? Well, this is telling us actually a couple of things, because there's a rich Old Testament background to this language right here. Warriors in Israel who would go out to battle, they would vow to become temporary, temporarily celibate. This is actually one way in which they were distinguished from warriors of other nations. They would keep themselves ceremonially clean because warfare in the Old Testament is actually an act of worship. They're set apart, as it were, a sort of priest. Now think, remember the story of Uriah the Hittite when he comes home and David's trying to get him to go back home for a little rest and relaxation. He does not do it because he is still under oath and he is faithful to his warrior's oath. Now, this might all sound strange to us, but this is the biblical background that's in play here. This is evoking this imagery of those who are being called out to a different kind of battle. This purity language, it also has to do with priests, with priests being admitted to the temple. See, in in Scripture, liturgy and conquest, liturgy and warfare, worship and warfare, these concepts are linked. This is an army of worshipers being trained by Jesus, and he's training them for a different kind of battle. These martyrs are about to die, and to prepare for martyrdom, Jesus has them in formation, learning to sing a new song. A new song in Scripture is not just one you come up with off the cuff, although maybe there's some of that there. A new song in Scripture is a victory song. Psalm 98, which we read as our psalm lesson and we read to call us to worship, this is a song celebrating the great victory of the Lord, the Lord's right hand, the Lord's strong right hand, going out and conquering as in battle. But their victory, these 144,000, like Jesus' victory, strangely comes through their death. Their weapons are not going to be swords and bows, their weapons will be their voices that sing and testify against their persecutors, bearing witness to the Lamb. There's actually a long tradition of martyrs going to their death, and what are they doing? They're singing. Some of this is probably hagiographic, but a lot of it, I'm sure, is true. It's quite appropriate. Victory songs sung by the the saints at the stake or with a knife to the throat, lions approaching or hanging on a cross. Jesus on the cross is not just the suffering Savior. We can also see Jesus on the cross as the singing Savior. We all know he, we think he quotes Psalm 22, right? We have that um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus is a good Jew who knew the Psalter backwards and forwards. Jesus was not just quoting verses from the Old Testament. They, were, they didn't Jews at that time didn't think like that. They thought of it as a whole. Jesus was singing the Psalms on the cross in the midst of his greatest battle. He is singing Psalm 22 in the midst of his persecutors. This is how he fights. And this is how the church fights, through song, particularly through singing these psalms, the prayer book, the hymn book that we have in Scripture. Martyrdom is the path to victory. And it's a path that's accompanied by song. Learning to sing with the Lamb prepares us for conflict. It prepares us for battles that we will inevitably face. In chapter 15, John sees the martyrs again who had conquered the beast and its image. Strangely, it would seem from the world's perspective, no, the beast had conquered the martyrs. But from heaven's perspective, it was the martyrs who had conquered the beast through their death. Now they've made this journey from chapter 14 to 15. They've made the journey from earth to heaven. Now they're given instruments. They've learned to sing this new song. They sing, we read, the Song of Moses, again a victory song celebrating God's great rescue and redemption. And they sing the Song of the Lamb. The Bible is full of song. You can think about Genesis chapter 1, the very opening pages of Scripture, as being the song of creation. The the Chronicles of Narnia got it right. Aslan sings creation into existence. The Father, as we read in Zephaniah 3, sings over his people with delight. Jesus is introduced into the world in Luke's gospel with song after song after song. The early church, it said, was born in song. And the church is commanded to be full of the Spirit. And what's the next part of that? To sing. To sing to one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This, at the very least, means that we're to sing the Psalms in the Bible, the Psalter. But we're to be active in singing. Revelation is not just a visually stimulating book. It's a loud book. It's a sung book. Christian worship is more than song. We have prayers, reading the word, reciting the creeds, baptism, Eucharist, but it's never less than singing. How will you, how will we be trained for the battles that we will face, that will test our faith, challenge our faith, How will we be prepared, possibly even for persecution? Parents, how will our kids actually learn the faith and grow up with the faith? What does that look like to train them up into the ways of the Lord? How will our congregation together grow bold and courageous in the faith? We need to keep learning the song, the song of the Lamb, the song of victory, We need to learn these victory songs because they are all our songs. What songs come out of you when life squeezes you? Wouldn't it be amazing if the Psalter came out of you? The rich songs from the tradition of the church came out of you when life starts to squeeze you. Christian worship is both warfare and training for battle. Not with swords clashing as we sang in our opening hymn. But it's It's not a battle of flesh and blood, but it's a battle against the powers and principalities of this world. It is spiritual warfare against the beast. One of the things we hope to do more and more of as we grow as a congregation is is to keep learning together to sing the song of the Lamb, to sing these victory songs. Things like hymn singing and learning new songs and new old songs, songs that are new to us, to learn to sing the psalms with our families, with our friends. The martyrs here, they're ascending into heaven. And they ascend to heaven in this environment of rich heavenly worship in song and music. And on their way to martyrdom, they're learning to sing. I find that so interesting, so fascinating. Vigorous, bold singing, it actually has a way of building courage in us. A church that learns to sing together, grows in singing together, is a church that encourages one another, creates an atmosphere, as it were, of heavenly ascent, as we're called to lay down our lives. Christianity has a rich tradition of hymnody and music and congregational singing. This is our inheritance that we should not ignore, but receive it with thankfulness and learn it and learn it together. You may not think you can sing. I mean, I hear this from, yeah, I can't really sing, but you can. Everyone here can sing, from the youngest to the oldest. Church is not supposed to be a performance of, like, you know, American Idol. That has its place out, out in, in another context. It's not a performance or a concert of any one person. It's actually a bunch of ordinary folks with ordinary voices, offering our voices together in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving so that we can be lifted up together into this heavenly ascent. This takes training. This takes practice. It takes commitment. But this is good. When you come to worship each week, you have something to offer God in each other. Your voice. Your voice in song. Joining the song of the Lamb is the most important thing we can do. Why? Because worship is the ultimate witness. Every Christian is a type of martyr. Now, you may not be called to die a literal death for Jesus, but we're all called to take up our cross, laying down our lives to follow Jesus. And this takes many different forms in our lives, we're called to die to ourselves. But also, the word martyr itself means witness. We think of it in the sense of those who are killed for their faith, and that's certainly true, but it means, quite literally, witness. Every Christian is a witness. Every Christian is a martyr. Every congregation is a witness. Every congregation is a martyr. And worship is bearing witness to the lamb, to another king, another reality, another story, the true story of the world. Worship is the most missional thing that we can do because it's declaring the praises of the Lord God. This is what's happening in Revelation 15, 3 through 4. The passage moves from song and it ends in song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your holy name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What I'd like to do as an application of this sermon is to sing a song that we're all familiar with, but it's a song that we typically associate only with Christmas, and that's Joy to the World. Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts, not in the first instance as a Christmas song though it's certainly appropriate to sing in Christmas and during, during Advent, actually. But it's a paraphrase of our Psalter lesson, Psalm 98. It's a song of victory, a song celebrating the victory that the Lord has secured for us and that we're to sing together with joy. So let's stand. I know it's going to seem a little strange singing the song in the, in the month of May, but let's stand and sing this and lift our voices up.